This is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. I'm super excited to introduce our guest today. Shimon Whiteson is a professor of computer science at Oxford University, uh, the head of WHIRL, the Whiteson Research Lab at Oxford, and head of research at Waymo UK. Professor Whiteson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So how do you describe uh, your personal research interests? Well, uh, pretty much all of my research is about figuring out how to control autonomous systems like robots, but also software agents like uh, in video games and other applications. Um, And we take a data-driven approach. So that means primarily reinforcement learning. That's sort of the primary mechanism by which we derive control policies from data for autonomous systems but also related tools like learning from demonstration. And um, well, in recent years, I've been focusing a lot on multi-agent reinforcement learning and also uh, meta reinforcement learning. So can you say a bit about um, what's happening at your world lab uh, lately? Well, a lot is happening. There's, I think, too many projects going on to to name them all. Um, But we have kind of over the past few years cohered around a couple subgroups. So one is about multi-agent reinforcement learning and the other one is about meta reinforcement learning. Um, so on the multi-agent reinforcement learning side, there's still a lot of core questions that, that aren't settled. Um, we actually have some exciting new results now um, using, using PPO that is kind of upending the conventional wisdom about uh, what does and doesn't work in multi-agent reinforcement learning. And we're trying to extend multi-agent reinforcement learning to uh, continuous domains, domains with continuous action spaces, and solve problems like how to transfer from from one task to related tasks that might have you know different numbers of agents and, and different entities in the world. Um, and on the meta reinforcement learning side, we're we're looking at uh, at Bayesian approaches primarily. So Bayesian reinforcement learning is a topic I've been interested in for a long time, but it always seemed kind of uh, um, like too uh, too good to be true, something that could not be made practical. But it's starting to feel like uh, the time for Bayesian reinforcement learning has finally come. So that's a, that's another exciting topic we're working on. Can you share a bit uh, with us about how you think about the roadmap for a lab like Whirl? Like, uh, do you kind of plan far ahead, or does the fast pace of ML mean uh, there's very short planning horizons? Um, it's not just machine learning. I think uh, in research in general, uh, planning is is kind of an impossible task. Um, you know, I think there's an expression like uh, you know, planning is essential, but plans are useless, which I think is very, very much true. Planning is a useful exercise, but any plan you make is is almost immediately obsolete. The first set of experiments you run comes out differently than you expect, and all your plans go out the window. Um, so my strategy focuses a lot more on people, just trying to recruit the best people and give them what they need to succeed. Uh I find that people always assume I have some grand like uh, research ambition, some overarching plan for my whole career, but actually things are very student driven. The thing, the lesson I've learned um, over the years is that the best results are obtained when students are, you know, given the freedom to work on the thing that they're really passionate about. So I do try to gently steer the students, but I, I don't really set the agenda because I find it counterproductive. I'd like to talk about a little bit about your work at Latent Logic, uh, your company that Waymo acquired uh, in 2019. I understand your team was developing uh, imitation learning to simulate human behavior on the road. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Um, yeah. So, so as I mentioned before, in addition to reinforcement learning, a big topic I work on is learning from demonstration. Learning from demonstration is a, a synonym for for imitation learning. Um, so, rather than assuming access to some reward signal, we learn from from some demonstrations, from some like example trajectories provided by an expert who knows how to solve the task. And um, at both at Latent Logic and now um, in its new incarnation as Waymo UK, the, the mission is basically the same, which is to provide a crucial piece of the simulation puzzle for self-driving. So simulation is extremely important to achieving uh, self-driving. There's basically no viable path to full autonomy that doesn't go through simulation. Even a um, an industry leader like Waymo that has a huge data advantage um, relies heavily on simulation in order to iterate quickly and to meet like extremely high safety standards. 
simulation is like a really important part of the safety evaluation process that's used to determine when, you know, when a new version of the software can be safely upgraded or deployed to a new domain. But um, that that's only the simulation is only useful if the simulations are realistic. And to make the simulations realistic, we need to have realistic models of the behavior of the other agents that the self-driving car might interact with, the human drivers, cyclists, and pedestrians that are also on the road. We need to know how they'll respond to behavior from a self-driving car. So we need, we need to learn realistic behavior models, realistic policies for those agents to put in the simulation or the simulation will be useless. And that's where imitation learning, learning from demonstration comes in. So we're building new imitation learning tools that derive such behavior from the data that's collected by Waymo's own cars on the road. Uh, to try try to learn realistic behavior models uh, to to make those simulators more worthwhile. So we have a couple papers to discuss uh, today. The first being very bad, and I remember this one at ICLR. Um, and the first author, uh, Louisa Zintgraf, had a memorable line to me in the poster session. She she said, "Very bad is a very good method." And uh, so let's let's talk about that. Can you share with us the, the what's the general uh, gist of this paper? What's going on in very bad? Yeah, so, so this is a great example of what I was referring to about Bayesian reinforcement learning. So the the starting point for very bad is a like an existing formalism called the Bayes adaptive Markov decision process, which is like um, the sort of fully Bayesian formulation of the reinforcement learning problem. So the, the idea behind the Bayes adaptive MDP is that we model the problem of reinforcement learning itself as a problem of partial observability. Like, why are we doing reinforcement learning? Why aren't we just planning? When why, why are we learning instead of planning? Because we don't know what Markov decision process we're in. So uh, we, we model that as a, as a latent state. Basically, the transition and reward functions, the unknown parts of the Markov decision process, they're treated as some kind of latent state. Um, and we have some observations that are correlated with them, but that don't disambiguate it. So this, this treats the problem as a partially observable Markov decision process where the hidden the um, the hidden variables correspond to the transition or reward functions of the of the unknown MDP that we're trying to do RLN. So what we have to do is we have an inference problem. We have to do inference about this latency. We have to maintain a posterior about what MDP we're in as we act in the world. And then the really important part is we need to plan in belief space. So this posterior over the um, over what MDP we're in, this is a belief. And as we take actions, we travel around from one belief to another. And if we can figure out the optimal policy for, for traveling through belief space, then we will have an optimal solution to the exploration problem in reinforcement learning. We will trade off information gathering and reward gathering actions uh, in exactly the right way so as to maximize our expected return over some, some planning horizon. So the, uh, this is like a, a known existing idea, the Bayes Adaptive MDP. Um, the trick is to make it practical, like planning in belief space is really difficult. The inference itself can be difficult. And, uh, you know, here we have an even, we have um, an additional challenge, which is that we don't even know how to describe the, this hidden state space. So what we do with very bad is we basically try to, to take this Bayes Adaptive formalism and combine it with some modern tools to come up with an approximate way to achieve Bayes' optimal behavior. So we use a variational autoencoder to approximate the inference, and then we use reinforcement learning methods, deep, deep reinforcement learning methods, policy gradient methods to approximate the planning step. So basically, we have uh, a network which does the inference in the form of, of this variational autoencoder, and then the posterior, um, the approximate posterior is then fed as input to a policy downstream which learns how to take actions conditioned on its posterior. So to learn a policy for moving around in belief space. And, uh, you know, because we take this approximate approach, rather than doing some analytical inference where you would compute your posterior directly from, from the prior, instead we're sampling from this prior. And uh, by sampling from the prior, um, what we basically do is turn it into a meta-reinforcement learning problem. Because every sample you draw from this prior, it's like a training task that you can use to figure out, um, you know, what is the mapping between beliefs and actions that you should take when you're then deployed in some new task, which you assume was sampled from the same prior. Um, so from a meta reinforcement learning perspective, the key insight here is that this policy that acts in, in some new unknown task, it should condition on your posterior, on the whole posterior. 
not on some point estimate or some sample from the posterior, which is what a lot of other methods have done. Uh, because when you condition on this posterior, you have the chance to approximate the Bayes optimal behavior that, you know, in principle, a solution to the base adaptive MDP would give you. So in this setting, does the agent observe the reward at test time? Yeah, but it, it doesn't know what reward function uh, generated that reward, but it can observe rewards. And that's like a, that's a clue about what the reward function is. So, so we had Taylor Killian on the show a few episodes back, and he did some uh, related work with uh, hip MD, hidden parameter MDPs, hip MDPs, which uh, the very bad paper cites. And in his case, um, it was it was medical patients. So the transition function had some variation, but the reward function didn't vary. We wanted the patients to get better. So if I understand correctly, in very bad, the task could differ in the reward function as well as the transitions. I, I, can you just help me help me understand like what kind of settings? Would we um, would we want the reward function to vary? Um, sure. So, uh, I mean, a good example of this is when a task corresponds to a user. So, if you think about, for example, if the agent is some kind of recommendation system or some ad serving system, then the reward function corresponds to when the user accepts the recommendation or clicks on the ad or you know views the recommended document or whatever. Uh, and the situations in which that would happen would be different for each user. So we can think of that as, as a reward function changing from task to task as it changes from user to user. But, you know, what's part of the transition function, what's part of the reward function is a bit um, uh, arbitrary. So you can you can move back and forth from one to the other just by changing the way you model the state space. Um, so it's it's not really a fundamental distinction. But, you know, from the perspective of the Bayes adaptive MDP, everything that's unknown about what task you're in, uh, any part of the description of the MDP, whether it's the transition function or the reward function that's unknown to you, that's uh, that's what you maintain a posterior about. I see. Okay. And then I wanted to ask you about this one line um, that said, and I'm quoting, a main difference of very bad to many existing Bayesian RL methods is that we meta-learn the inference procedure, i.e. how to do a posterior update. Is it, was it, was there any other option than to meta-learn that? Or was that, uh, does meta-learning there um, help in some way? Um, so, I mean, in principle, you can do the inference exactly, but that's not going to be practical for the kind of tasks that we're interested in solving. Um, so the main issue is that we don't have a priori a good low-dimensional representation of this hidden state. Uh, you know, we can, we can write down a big table to design the transition and reward functions and then say, okay, we need to fill in all the values in this table. Um, but that's going to be really high dimensional. And, you know, if you have continuous states, it's not even going to be possible. So, um, you know, if we represent it as these tables, the inference will be easy. You know, we, we can use Dirichlet priors and just do inference by updating counts. But then, you know, this Bayes optimal policy, it's going to have to explore every state separately. We won't learn about new tasks. We won't figure out what new task we're in nearly quickly enough to be uh, to be a, a like a an effective agent. So what we have to do is we have to find some low dimensional latent representation that lets us generalize. So we have to fit you know only a handful of parameters to disambiguate what state we're in, and we have to come up with this latent representation at exactly the same time that we learn a procedure for doing inference on that latent space. And you know that's exactly what the variational autoencoder can do. It's one it's one tool for solving exactly that problem. Um, and then you know once we solve that problem, we just have to learn a policy that conditions on the approximate posterior um, to to approximate this Bayes optimal behavior. Cool. Thanks. All right. So let's move on to multi agent uh, RL. So you have such a depth of of experience and knowledge in multi agent RL. So I'm looking forward to asking you this. Uh, what are the main challenges uh, with multi agent RL at this point? Um, so I'll, I'll restrict myself to the cooperative setting because that's the one I focus the most on and there's enough to talk about there. So one thing is representational. There are still um, sort of core questions about how we should be representing the complex value functions that we need to learn in order to solve a cooperative multi-agent RL problem. So factorization of a complex value function um, has been has been a big focus. And a lot of the progress that has occurred has has come from factorization, but we don't we still don't know really what are the right factorizations and what kind of factorizations will be needed for the even harder tasks we'd like to solve. Another one is robustness. We need to be able to generalize better from you know from one task to another to you know learn policies that can um, 
operate in situations where there might be different numbers of agents when agents enter and leave the scene, um, or where there might be different numbers of, of other entities in the world, non-agent entities. And then I guess the other thing I would mention would just be algorithmic questions. So um, how centralized should these algorithms be? Should the agents be learning independently? Should they be totally centralized? Should they be somewhere in between? Um, the, you know, as I mentioned before, we have some, some new results and those results are kind of upending the conventional wisdom about that. So it seems like maybe centralization of these algorithms is not as important as we had thought and as the, the results from the past couple of years um, had been suggesting. So my own introduction to multi-agent RL was uh, building RL agents for the Palmerman uh, competition in Europe's 2018, the Palmerman environment a couple of years back. And I noticed that there are just so many different ways that things can be arranged in multi-agent RL. So I, I wonder, is there any question at this point of whether we have the right uh, frameworks for thinking about this, these problems? Um, like, is it more, and maybe you partially touched on this before, but is it more a, a matter of like solving technical issues uh, where the problems already been framed and and well defined. Yeah, I, I think there I think there are definitional problems. So I think in any field, sort of half the battle is asking the right questions, um, and that that's certainly true in multi agent RL. In fact, maybe it's especially true in multi agent RL because as as you as you said, once you move from the single agent setting to the multi agent setting, there's like an explosion of possible settings and all these different assumptions you can make. And that's that's a practical problem because it leads to a lot of confusion, um, you know, where people assume one thing about your formalism when actually the formalism works differently. So just even communicating about what we're doing uh, is tricky, but it also makes it harder to figure out what the right questions are because there's this overwhelming like um, like a bounty of choices of formalisms you can focus on. I think a fair amount of the success, the, the progress that um, we've made in my lab on solving multi-agent RL problems has come from identifying sort of the right assumptions. What is the right setting to focus on? So finding a sweet spot in particular, focusing on this CTDE setting, this essentialized training and decentralized execution, which seems to be um, like kind of a key assumption. It's restrictive in a way that gives you leverage to solve the problem, but not so restrictive that it's unrealistic or the algorithms are not actually useful. And so I do think there needs to be more focus on, you know, finding those sweet spot settings in order to make progress. In non-cooperative settings, it's even more difficult because just even pinning down what it is that we're trying to do, what is the point of multi-agent learning, uh, what would the definition of success be, that that itself becomes non-trivial in non-cooperative settings. So in Palmerman, in some versions, there was a communication channel. And, uh, and I noticed when we, we talk about um, uh, decentralized policies, we're assuming that uh, agents can't see each other's observations or they can't communicate. I wonder how much of the complexity of, of multi-agent RL is, is due to that inability to communicate. And, and if, if agents had, cooperative agents had like high capacity communication channels, does that, does that make the problem just really simple or, or does that just move the complexity around? Uh, so if um, if they have high capacity communication channels, like if communication is, is basically free, then there's a sense in which the problem isn't really multi-agent. Um, so basically, if every agent can broadcast all of its observations to the other agents, then we don't really need to think about there being multiple agents. We're in what's called the multi-agent MDP, which is not a very good name because it's not really inherently multi-agent. We can think of it as if there's one puppeteer agent that's deciding what everyone has to do. And it's that agent just happens to face a multi-dimensional action space. We can think of each dimension as being an agent, but that's just semantics. Um, so without some constraint on communication, it isn't fundamentally multi-agent. That doesn't mean that it's easier to solve. So, you know, there's there's um, a distinction between the natural and the artificial decentralization. The natural decentralization is imposed by the world because there's some like your sensors don't allow you to communicate. And then there's artificial decentralization where we as designers say, OK, we're going to treat each agent, you know, in some semi-independent or local way, because having every agent condition on everything that every agent observed is just not a tractable learning problem. So even if it's not fundamentally multi-agent, it may um, it may still be very difficult if the agents can communicate, but the bandwidth is limited, then um, they face a different challenge, which is that they have to like invent a language or a protocol by which they're going to communicate, use that channel efficiently. 
Um, and if they can't communicate at all, well, then coordination becomes difficult because they don't know uh, what their teammates have observed and therefore what they're going to do. Um, but the problem may be simpler in the sense that at least they don't have all those observations coming in that they have to process and they don't have to think of a clever protocol uh, to use to communicate with their teammates. So people are talking about what it's what's going to take to use RL in the real world. And it seems like there's a lot of work left to do there. Um, there's a NeurIPS 2020 workshop on this topic. Is there a parallel discussion on what it'll take to use multi-agent RL in the real world? Um, or is it, or is the multi-agent just, just too early on to, to think about that? I, I don't think it's too early on. I think certainly there's a lot left to do. There are a lot of open challenges, but I think we actually already have algorithms that can be of practical use in, in many real world applications. And if you think about robots and warehouses that need to, you know, coordinate their behavior to like avoid colliding with each other when they're fetching packages or, you know, a video game AI where you have to learn agents that play effectively with human teammates and against human opponents. Um, and of course, self-driving cars, um, you know, they share the road with other agents. So, um, I, th I think there are a number of real world applications where the existing tools are already of use, even, even if there may be, uh, uh, still open questions. So can you comment on the use of, um, deep RL and multi-agent RL, uh, for autonomous vehicles? You said that they, uh, the current methods might, might be useful for that. Is that, is that, um, is that relevant now or is that something for the future? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you can think about, uh, so to give just one of many examples, um, one core problem in self-driving is, is behavior prediction. So before you even get to thinking about how you're going to act, you need to be able to make predictions about how other agents are going to act. Um, and that already implies a kind of game theoretic reasoning. The actions of the other agents will be conditioned on some, you know, assumptions they make about how you are going to act. Um, you know, like, uh, if I try to merge, the car behind me will, you know, hit the brakes in order to make room for me. So that kind of um, that kind of reasoning in which agents uh, have a model of how the other uh, agents on the road are going to act and their behavior conditions on that model. So, you know, if we're going to make good predictions about whether agent what other agents are going to do, we need to think game theoretically. We need to have models of them, and we need to think about the models that they have of us. So that almost sounds like a theory of mind thing. Do do we can we just stop at the one level? Uh, it is it is a theory of mind thing. Um, I, I think we don't know what level we need to we need to go to. <laughs> okay, so um, in our first episode, uh, we talked about multi-agent RL research from from Natasha Jakes, who had uh, the social influence paper for solving social dilemma environments where standard RL agents couldn't uh, solve the collective tasks like uh, tragedy of the commons type tasks. So, are are the types of methods you're talking about uh, cooperative RL? Uh, cooperative multi-agent RL, would they be suitable for these types of tasks? Um, well, the tragedy of commons is something that arises in a mixed setting. Um, so I guess the answer is no. I see. It's a different setting. Yeah. So, so there, there's a, um, there's a related challenge which arises in the cooperative setting. Uh, so in the cooperative setting, you have, you have the multi-agent credit assignment problem. So, you know, it, it, if you know RL, you probably know the temporal credit assignment problem, which is like, you know, I, I win a game of chess and then I look back at move 17 and say, how much credit do I give to move 17 for my, you know, my ultimate victory? Well, we have the same idea in the multi-agent setting, but it's across agents instead of time. So, you know, the, the, the football team scores a goal and then um, you have to ask, like, how much credit does each player on the team get for that goal? Mm. Um so if you don't solve the multi-agent credit assignment properly, then you can get, you can have like lazy agents, um, agents that learn like not to do anything because the team will kind of win anyway. So if you don't tease apart, uh, um, what that agent's contribution is and make sure to reward them only if they actually made a difference, then they might end up being lazy. So it's not the same as the tragedy of the commons, which arises from the fact that interests are not aligned. This is just a, um, like a learning difficulty among cooperative agents, but it is, it's kind of, um, conceptually similar. Cool. Okay. And then, um, this issue of how to break symmetry with in decentralized multi-agent, like if, if two agents are approaching a, a doorway, um, you know, which goes first, so they don't bump into each other. How, how does, is that a, is that a trivial problem or is that a deep problem in, in, in moral? Um, it, it can be a deep problem. So, so, in the multi-agent literature, this is typically addressed with what are called social conventions. 
So the idea is that in advance, you have some agreement, like if we come to an intersection, the person who sees the red light stops and the person who sees the green light goes. That's just an arbitrary social convention, but because we've agreed on it, we're able to you know, avoid collisions. Um, so in, this, in the cooperative setting, when we have this CTDE assumption, when we have the centralized training, decentralized execution setting, then we have the opportunity to form social conventions during training. The training process is centralized, so we all agree together what are the set of policies we're going to use later uh, when we're deployed. Um, but we won't be able to communicate uh, anymore after deployment. Um, and you know, typically to speed up the learning process, we do parameter sharing. So during the centralized phase, we, we're learning policies for all the agents, but really we're just learning one policy which all the agents can use. Um, but those policies typically condition on the like agent index. And you could also, if you wanted to, condition on like a, re a richer description of the agent's type. And uh, this allows the agents to be as heterogeneous as they'd like, even though they completely share policy, share uh, parameters. Mm. So in this way, you can break ties by conditioning on the agent index. But if you don't have the CTDE setting, if the agents don't get to plan together, if it's like an ad hoc teamwork setting or a fully decentralized setting where they learn from scratch uh, and they're already decentralized when they start learning, or if the agents are not cooperative, so this pre-planning phase doesn't even make any sense because they're not on the same team. In all of those settings, then this, this symmetry breaking problem can be, can be more fundamental. Cool. That was super interesting. Okay. Let's move on to Cumex. That's the second paper we plan to discuss. Uh, the title uh, of that paper is Monotonic Value Function Factorization for Deep Multi-Agent Reinforcement Learning by Rashid et al. Uh, in 2020 and with yourself as a co-author. Um, can you uh, tell us briefly, what, what is this paper about? Yeah, so, so this paper is a great example of um, trying to leverage this CTDE setting. So we want to do this centralized training, the result of which will yield decentralized policies that we can execute without further communication. And um, what we're trying to do is learn a um, centralized value function. So we're trying to learn a big value function that all the agents will use that estimates the expected return um, conditioned on the actions of all the agents. So this is a joint value function that takes all the agents into account. But because um, that value function is really complex and difficult to learn, we're, gon we're going to learn a factored value function. So we're gonna have a, um, a factorization that's going to exploit conditional independence properties between the agents in order to um, simplify the value function, make it easier to learn. And we're going to choose a particular form of factorization that's going to allow us to achieve decentralizability. So what this value function does is it's going to, it's going to be like a mixture of local value functions. So for each agent, each agent will have its own kind of local estimate of value. And then all those local estimates will get mixed together into an estimate of the joint centralized value. Um, and if we, if we are clever about how we do this mixing, then we'll achieve this decentralizability property, which basically says that, you know, rather than having to do some really expensive um, maximization over the joint action space, every time we want to select actions or do a learning update, which not only would be expensive, but which would not be possible in the decentralized setting. Instead, we're just going to do a bunch of local argmaxes where every agent will just individually maximize with respect to its local value function. And if we choose the mixing uh, in the right way, then these two come out the same. So we have this decentralizability property if we can do these local argmaxes and get the same result as if we did the expensive global argmax. Um, and it turns out that you know if the mixing function has this monotonicity property, if the um, joint value function uh, has a monotonic relationship to each of the local value functions, then this decentralizability property holds and uh, you know we can easily we can trivially decentralize the value function once we've learned it. So for the listeners, uh, I just want to point out that uh, Professor Whiteson gave a lecture on QMix at the MIT Embodied Intelligence um, series earlier this year, which I liked a lot, and uh, where you also touched on um, uh, SMAC and Maven. And I encourage listeners to check that out, and the link will be in the show notes. So the um, SMAC, this StarCraft multi-agent challenge testbed here um that was managing units in starcraft 2 um from what i understand that's that's 
different than what AlphaStar was doing. AlphaStar was trying to control everything with a central, one centralized agent, and SMAC is 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 uh, separate agents for each unit. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I mean, AlphaStar is an amazing, amazing achievement, of course. Um, the similarities between their setting and 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 what we are doing are actually only quite superficial. So they do both focus on on StarCraft II, but in AlphaStar they're solving the whole problem, micro and macro, um, and uh, they're doing it with like a single puppeteer agent. So we can think of this as this multi-agent MDP setting that I mentioned earlier. Um, so there's a single agent that decides what every unit is going to do. Uh, whereas what we're trying to do is model the, the deck POMDP, the decentralized partially observable Markov decision process. The multi-agent aspect is inherent because the agents have only a partial view of the world and they, they can't communicate directly with each other. Um, so in StarCraft, that means the agents have a limited field of view. And uh, we're trying to learn how to coordinate their behavior just in micromanagement. So when should we think about centralized training? When would that be the right or wrong um, uh, way to frame things in, in say, real-world multi-agent RL? So the, the setting makes sense when, um, when on deployment, it's no longer possible for the agents to communicate directly, or um, we don't want to rely on that communication. So anytime you want uh, solutions that are really robust, you might not want to rely on communication channels that might go down, um, you know, or that that might just um, uh, be unreliable. So then you can learn a policy where, where the agents don't condition, they don't rely on getting input directly from the other agents. Uh, and, and in that way, you can learn more robust policies. So, the, you know, that, that those are the settings when you want this decentralized policy. Um, the centralization of the training, that that is possible anytime the agents can train together in advance. And this is, I think, almost all of the time, because, you know, even in a single agent setting, much less a multi-agent one, we don't deploy agents in the real world, tabula rasa. We don't say, okay, just we'll just put this robot out in the world and have it learn what MDP it's in from scratch. Um, we train them in advance, and then we fine-tune them on deployment. So that training together, it, it almost always happens. Um, the other assumption that I think is important to, worth, to, to mention is that um, this setting does assume that the world is stationary. Like we're in some DECPOMDP, um, but that DECPOMDP is not changing. So that the, the plan that we make during the centralized training setting is still relevant on deployment. Um, now, that doesn't mean that if things are non-stationary, if the world is changing over time, that this setting is inapplicable because uh, it could still be the starting point. So if you have a world where you, you aren't sure that the, you know, the laws of physics won't change over time, you might still want to do centralized training and decentralized execution. But then on top of that, you would want to have some decentralized learning algorithms so the agents can continue to adapt as the world changes. So uh, if I understood correctly, this paper builds on the Value Decomposition Network by Sunheg et al. 2017, that's VDN, um, which, I, which I think I heard you say avoids the extremes of uh, the independent Q functions on the one hand and the fully centralized Q functions on the other hand. Um, can you say a bit about how, um, how QMix uh, extends VDN or is it different from VDN? Yeah, so, so both... Both VDN and QMix are, I would say, on the extreme of that spectrum in the sense that they're learning centralized value functions. So learning value functions that condition, um, you know, on the actions of all the agents um, mm. and, and in fact, all of their observations. But they just factor that centralized value function in a different way. Mm. So um, VDN and QMix, they both are designed so as to um, factor the value function in a way that allows this decentralizability property I mentioned. So that, you know, every agent, after the value function is learned, every agent can just take its local component of it and use that to decide how to act, just maximize with respect to its local component. Um, but VDN achieves this by just mixing these local value functions as a simple summation. So the, the joint value function is just a sum of the local value functions. And that's enough, that, that achieves this decentralizability but in an unnecessarily restrictive way. So the idea behind QMix was 
if what we're after is decentralizability, the property we need is just monotonicity. And we can have a richer monotonic way of mixing these local value functions that, that isn't just a summation. Hmm. Okay. And, and then, um, Qmix has this, has a mixing network. Um, if I understand correctly, the weights are generated by a hyper network. Um, could, could you maybe comment on the hyper network here? That's something that I haven't seen very often. Um, how does that help? Yeah. So, um, the hypernetwork is actually a key ingredient, and we've done some uh, ablation experiments that confirm that this is actually quite important to performance. So a, a hypernetwork is just a neural network, the outputs of which specify the weights of another neural network. So in QMIX, we have these agent networks. These are the local value functions that, that each agent you know, can compute based on its local observations. And then we have a mixing function that takes the output of all of those agent networks as input and it produces output and estimate of the joint value. But the mixing network, its weights are not expressed directly. They are expressed as the output of a hyper network. So when we train, we optimize the parameters of the agent network. Those parameters are shared among all the agents. And we, we optimize the parameters of the hyper network. And the hyper network then in turn produces the weights of the mixing network. And um, the reason to do that is because the mixing network is only used during the training phase. So we have this centralized training, decentralized execution. Anything that you're going to throw away during the um, during the execution phase is something that can take advantage of things that are only available during centralized training. So this mixing network, it takes as input not just the um, outputs of the agent networks, it takes as input also the global state, the state which will be hidden from the agents in the execution phase, but which during this centralized training we can assume access to. Um, so, and that's fine. It can, it can th this centralized state can be input to the mixing network because we won't need the mixing network during the execution phase. So, the fact that it's that it will be hidden during execution is no problem. Um, but the mixing network is constrained to um, adhere to this monotonicity property. So then the weights of the mixing network have to be non-negative so that this monotonicity property is preserved. And we don't want to restrict the, uh, the relationship between the state and the mixing network. We want the mixing network to be able to uh, change flexibly as the centralized state changes. We want to be able to mix these local value functions in a different way for every state. So by having the state be input to the hyper network rather than to the mixing network, we get around this monotonicity constraint. Um, and 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 enable a more flexible conditioning on the on the state. Hmm. And then by global state, does that mean like the 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 set of all the agent observations together? Is it? Um, so actually, in the deck POMDP in general, um, even if you concatenate all of the agents' observations together, that still does not disambiguate the global state. So there's a related formalism called the deck MDP, where uh, you know, every agent has partial observability, but if you put all the agents' observations together, then you know the state. But in the deck POMDP, you still don't know the state even when you put all the observations together. Um, but, you know, the centralized training, it happens in a simulator or something where we assume we can just cheat and look under the hood and see what the global state is. Um, the only thing is we're not allowed to use it. The, the, the policies we learn are not allowed to condition on it in the decentralized execution phase. But we have it while we're training, and we want to exploit it, and we exploit it by um, having the mixing network condition on it via the hyper network. Okay, so so we're assuming a simulator that has that can that can reveal the global state, which I guess wouldn't be the case if this is an off-policy deployed robots or something like that. I, I mean, it, that totally depends on the situation. But yeah, there are mm -hmm. there are some situations where you might, during training, be be have access to the. Um, to the joint observation, but still not have access to the state. That can happen. Cool. Okay. So, so the, the monotonicity, um, if I understand that correctly, means that, um, does that mean that all the agents, uh, value functions have to be aligned in a sense? Um, if we had, uh, like I, I we, we were talking earlier, right, I had in the notes about an example of, um, you know, if one agent had a slightly different, uh, value function, they, they liked something that wasn't, wasn't good for the team. Um, would that violate the monotonicity um, assumption? No. So, so that's a different issue. So um, 
if the agents have different value functions, then we're in a mixed setting. So their, their preferences are not aligned. Um, and what that means is that the value function is vector valued. There's actually a different value for every agent. Like if you write down a normal form game, in each cell in that normal form game, there's more than one number because there's a payoff for every agent. Mm. So the value is actually a vector. Here, we still have a fully cooperative setting. So the value is a scalar. The output of this mixing function, this estimate of the joint value function is a scalar value, just like in single agent RL. But it's composed of a bunch of, by mixing a bunch of local value estimates. So when we say that it's monotonic, what we mean is that our estimate of this, of this scalar valued joint value function um, has the, the property that it increases monotonically with respect to each, of, each agent's local value. Um, so what in effect this means is that um, you know, each agent, the action that it wants to take does not depend on the action choices of the other agents uh, because its value, you know, as its local, if it changes its action so as to increase its local value, it knows that that will also increase the joint value. In uh, in the MIT lecture that that we mentioned earlier, um, you talked about the Google Research Football uh, environment. Can 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 you comment on how um, the StarCraft multi-agent challenge and the Google Research Football environment um, present different types of multi-agent char- challenges? And and like what what kind of dimensions? do you think about you know, when comparing environments like that? Um, so I can speculate about that. I don't know the answer because we haven't done enough with Google Research Football yet. Uh, okay. Um, but I can speculate because we do know a lot from the related problem of the RoboCup Simulation League. Uh, you know, we, we, it's just like a, like another, another football simulator that's been around for a long time. Google Research Football is kind of the same idea, but, you know, in a new framework that makes uh, learning easy and that connects nicely to deep learning packages and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, what we know from the RoboCup Simulation League is that uh, in, in a task like this, hierarchy is very important. So it's going to be very hard to learn like a flat monolithic policy that plays, you know, World, World Cup football. Um, it's it's uh, a naturally hierarchical task, and you need to leverage that hierarchy in order to make the learning problem tractable. Um, so you need to think about you know high level skills like passing the ball, shooting on goal, playing defense, that kind of thing. Um, hierarchical reinforcement learning is an active topic of research. It's a very difficult, uh, you know, sort of challenging area of research where I think there's still there still hasn't been like a a wow result yet, but we. Um, we at the same time know that it's an essential ingredient that we will eventually need to have. Um, from the perspective of, of multi-agent reinforcement learning, when we add hierarchy into the equation, then things get interesting because hierarchy increases the level of simultaneity. So basically, if you're acting with a monolithic policy, you might be acting at very fine-grained time steps. Like you act every time step and the time step might be, you know, like a fraction of a second. But if you have a hierarchical policy at the higher levels of the hierarchy, things are abstracted away. So taking an action means deciding to shoot on goal, an action which might last like several seconds. And from a multi-agent perspective, this increases your simultaneity with the other agents. So when you commit to a high level thing like shoot on goal, a lot happens while that's being executed and you know the other agents are doing a lot in the meantime. And this greatly increases the importance of coordination among the agents. So if simultaneity is low, if a time step is only a fraction of a second, it's not that important to coordinate with your teammates because if you choose the wrong action, you know one time step later, you'll see, you'll observe what the other agents did, you'll see it wasn't right, you can change your response. So instead of coordinating, you can just react to what the other agents do. If simultaneity is high because you're choosing high-level abstract skills that take several sections, se- seconds to execute, um, then coordination may be crucially important. By the time you realize that you know you should have passed instead of shooting on goal, you know you've already you've already um, lost the game. Cool. Okay. Um, just to be clear, can you uh, can you define simultaneity uh, for me? Um, I, I can define it in a hand wavy sure. <laughs> way. Per- yeah. Perfect. We can think of it as like how much happens in one time step. 
so like how much is the world going to change uh, between now and when you get to act again? Uh, if it's only a tiny bit, then you can just wait and see what the other guy did and react. Um, like including the changes in the environment and the other agents? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Okay, okay. But if, if a lot is going to change before you act again, then it's really important that you that you that your choice is coordinated with your teammates, or it'll be too late to fix it later. Okay, that makes sense. All right, so um, so we have a fair number of grad students and future grad students uh, in the audience. Um, I know that from the from the Twitter account. Um, do you have any advice for for students who who might want you or or someone like you as an advisor, or generally for uh, for those who want to pursue? Um, uh, Postgraduate studies in in um, in ML and RL. Um, sure, I can say a couple of things. Um, I would say there's no substitute for a strong foundation, um, you know, and that's that's as much true now as it was before deep learning became a big thing. Um, you know, especially important in machine learning are topics like calculus, linear algebra, probability, and statistics. Uh, a really good foundation in those topics is is absolutely essential. Um, I think it's also really important to, or it's really helpful to get some research experience before you start uh, something like a PhD. Um, I, I think a lot of people think research is something that you're either good at or you aren't, but actually it's a very learnable skill. Uh, but it's a skill that can only be learned by doing it. So I think it's really helpful to get some experience, um, not only so that if you do start a PhD, you you have some of the the tools you need to actually make a success of it, but so that you find out you know whether you like it and that you're able to demonstrate on you know like on an application that you that you have developed some of those skills that you have the capacity uh, you know to to complete the degree you're applying for. So sometimes I wonder about people who um, did say a PhD on on support vector machines um, when they were big uh, before ML turned to deep learning. And so um, so those aren't that relevant anymore. And so you might think, well, was that a good choice? How, how, do, how, do, uh, how do people, how should people pick a topic that's, that's going to stay relevant, that, they, that they're, they're confident will, will still be relevant? So my, uh, my opinion might be a bit unconventional about this sort of thing, but I would say don't worry about it. I, I see a lot of people like um, doing a lot of hand wringing about whether they're working on the right topic. Um, and, and I think it's a waste of energy. I think, I think research impact is really difficult to predict and, and almost entirely out of your control. Uh, you know, it depends not only on, you know, what happens with the development of science and technology itself, but also a lot of political stuff, just like what happens uh, you know, what stuff happens to be popular, uh, you know, what happens with, you know, trends and dynamics within the machine learning community that, that, you know, have nothing to do with science, just have to do with people. So I think it's a mistake to get too invested in like, you know, my happiness and success depends on, you know, what, you know, whether some arbitrary thing becomes popular or not. I think, you know, it's important to work on something that you're passionate about, that you find exciting because otherwise it will go nowhere. Um, if you aren't really enthusiastic about it, nothing good will come out of it. But, you know, whether it's going to have impact, uh, who knows? Uh, I don't think anybody can really predict that. And I don't think, you know, if you pick a topic and it turns out to be unfashionable, I don't think that's a huge problem. I think if you look at a lot of the, you know, the really big figures in the machine learning community today, um, you know, the ones that were around before deep learning became popular, they were working on something else. They were working on, you know, support vector machines, or they were working on graphical models, or they were working on uh, Bayesian optimization. And, you know, when the deep learning revolution happened, they adapted. They learned from these new tools. They revised their beliefs and their view and their um, priorities. They figured out how to how to use these new tools effectively on the problems that they were interested in. Um, they changed their research focus uh, as a result of of you know the changing situation. And then they, you know, made important, valuable contributions to to deep learning. So uh, one of the exciting things about doing academic work is that it never gets old because there always is this new stuff coming down the pipeline that you uh, uh, get to learn about and and explore and do things with. That's also the challenge of it because you can never you can never afford to rest on your laurels, you know, or get stale. And as you get older, it gets harder and harder to sort of like 
wrap your head around each new revolution and um, and make a contribution to it. But um, you know that that's the fun of it. Um, can you um, can you fill us in on what what conferences like, are there? Are there multi agent uh, learning conferences? I guess our, our audience might be familiar with uh, the NeurIPS and ICML and ICLR. But are there um, are there other conferences outside of that that are that are good to pay attention to for for multi agent work? Yeah. So I mean, those that you mentioned are the the primary ones and and um, the ones where we primarily submit our publications in my lab. Uh, the other one worth mentioning is is AMOS, Autonomous Agents and Multi-Agent Systems. That was actually the first conference I ever published at. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that, I mean, there's a, a lot of multi-agent stuff happens there. The, I guess the other one would be ICAPS, which is the planning conference. Um, so it's not multi-agent reinforcement learning, but but like, for example, in the DECPOMDP formalism, a lot of the work is on the planning side, not the learning side. So a, a lot of multi-agent stuff is published there, too. So besides um, your own work and the things we mentioned uh, here today already, are there, are there other things happening in, in RL that you find interesting lately? Um, a lot of interesting stuff is happening in RL, though the main difficulty is keeping up with it. There's such a like, fire hose of papers being published. Um, the things that, that, that interest me tend to be the things that contradict my prior beliefs, because that's when I like, really learn something new. Fortunately, I'm wrong a lot, so I, I'm always learning something. Um, I would say like a recent example of that is what's been happening with unsupervised learning in reinforcement learning. So methods like curl um, that use contrastive losses to, um, to, in an unsupervised way, learn good representations for reinforcement learning. Um, so I'm, I'm on record as, as a skeptic of unsupervised approaches for reinforcement learning. Um, I've uh, I've made public uh, comments about it on a number of occasions, so I think it's you know I think it's fair to say I underestimated their success. Um, I would not have predicted that you know these recent methods and how successful they've been. I do I I would say I've only partially revised my opinion on the subject because I I am still concerned about cases where um, the choice of features, what makes a good feature, depends crucially on the reward function. I mean to me it's self evident that in general. Uh, you know, the way to represent the world, the way to process your observations into some higher level representation depends very much on the task that you're in. Um, so I don't think that that we can do this in an, in an unsupervised way, but unsupervised methods can help. And, um, uh, you know, I was I was surprised to learn how much they could help. So I think we came in just under the hour. Um, this has been a f fascinating interview, uh, Professor Shimon Whiteson. Uh, you're so kind to take the time out to speak with us. I know you want to uh, tuck your kids into bed tonight, <laughs> so um, I'm glad to end it there. Thank you so much on behalf of myself and our audience, uh, Professor Whiteson. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Notes and links for this episode are at talkrl.com. If you like this show, I need your support. You can help in a few ways. One, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Subscriptions make a big difference. Two, follow us on Twitter at TalkRLPodcast. We love retweets. Three, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you don't think we deserve five stars, let us know on Twitter what we could do better. Four, 